Today, we're going to deal with a passage that um, I have read through dozens and dozens of times, but never slowed down and looked at to see what kind of things were uh, not necessarily hidden, but just not so obvious. And I got to tell you, we're uh, 19 weeks into our Acts series, and so far, this passage, the one that I was not particularly excited about, has been my favorite so far once I started working through it. So I'm looking forward to it. Let's pray. Father, thanks for bringing us together this morning. Uh, I thank you for the, the brothers and sisters in Christ who are here, uh, adopted into the family of God. I thank you for those who've not yet been pulled into that family, into that kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that today would be a step in that direction for them. I pray that you would open each heart and mind, open our ears, help us to hear what it is that you're saying to us through your word. Shape us more into the image of your son, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been working through Acts, and uh, the main idea of Acts is that the church, the people of the church, they're called out of the world and into a new family, a, a spiritual family, the kingdom of God, the family of God, and then we're sent back out into the world with the gospel message in order to try to bring more people into the family, the kingdom of God. And we've seen how that mission given to the church has gotten off to, in one sense, a really fast start. Thousands of people coming to faith in Christ in Jerusalem, but the scope of the, the mission has been pretty slow in getting started. So we've looked at these concentric circles that, that Jesus himself gave to the disciples, saying that your mission is in Jerusalem, Judea, like the county around Jerusalem, Samaria, the next county over, it's similar in language and um, background and all that, but culturally different, um, religiously different. And then the, the ends of the earth, including everything else. And for the first seven chapters of Acts, it pretty much just hung out in Jerusalem. The gospel was a change in lives in Jerusalem. And then suddenly in the book, the eighth chapter of the book of Acts, we've gone from just hanging out Jerusalem to spreading out through all of Judea and even into Samaria, which we saw the last couple weeks. And then today, it's going to explode to the ends of the earth, even to Central Africa. So seven chapters of hanging out in one spot, and then eight chapters to get us all the way out to that farthest concentric circle. Last week, we looked at how God took the gospel to Samaria through a deacon named Philip. He didn't have to travel real far. It was maybe a couple days or walking, maybe even just one really long day of walking to get to the, the main city in Samaria. And he shared the gospel with folks there, and it was, it was amazing transformation. God saved the Samaritans, and it was a real surprise to people. Today, Philip is going to travel southwest to Gaza, We'll put that on the map here. Gaza is both a city and a region. It'd be like saying New York, New York. And uh, the, Gaza is in the news often. I heard just two days ago it was mentioned in a newscast, the Gaza Strip. And uh, it's, it's been a place, that's where the Philistines came from. So like Goliath, that's his home area down there. And it's been a problem for the people of Israel for many, many years. Philip's going to get sent down there. And amazingly, God's going to use him to bring the gospel to Ethiopia in Africa. So let's 
get a sense for how far we're talking here. 2,000 miles from Israel to Ethiopia. Now, Philip's not going to travel that, but Philip's going to set in motion the gospel message to Ethiopia. If you went just south of Ethiopia, you'd get to Kenya, and you go to the southern part of Kenya, you get to Mombasa, where our friends Abdi and Laura are missionaries there. Some fun facts about Ethiopia. Ethiopia has a 13-month calendar. There are lots of places in the world that have calendars different than ours, but almost everybody has a 12-month calendar. For some reason, Ethiopia, for hundreds of years, has operated on a 13-month calendar. And what that does for the modern age is it allows them to advertise in their tourist information 13 months of sunshine in Ethiopia, which right now sounds pretty good in the middle of February here, right? I don't know how they make that work and how they operate you know, with the rest of the world, but somehow they do 13 months. But more importantly, Ethiopia is the birthplace of coffee. Yes. So some of you are very thankful for Ethiopia this morning. For me, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I love this next fact about Ethiopia. If you think about the giant continent of Africa, half of all the mountains in Africa are in Ethiopia. Now I want to go to Ethiopia. Right? I want to see some mountains in Africa. In the northern part of Ethiopia, there's a city called Aksum, A-K-S-U-M, or sometimes spelled A-X-S-U-M. It was the capital of the Aksumite kingdom in the time of Jesus and, and Philip. They, that kingdom experienced 400 years of prosperity and power, and interestingly, has some strong Jewish ties. So the Bible tells us that the queen of Sheba Sheba being an ancient name for Ethiopia. There's an artist rendition of the Queen of Sheba. She's got some serious bling going on there. Queen of Sheba, we're told, visited King Solomon, so third king of Israel, son of David, back in Jerusalem about a thousand years before Jesus. Solomon had a worldwide reputation of being the wisest man in the world, and so the queen traveled 2,000 miles in order to meet him and learn from him. Now, Ethiopian legend, not the Bible, but Ethiopian legend says that she was so impressed with Solomon that she converted to Judaism and brought the Jewish religion back to Ethiopia. And there's been a strong Jewish community, not Jewish in nationality, but Jewish in religious practice in Ethiopia ever since. Surprising. Now, another legend from Ethiopia says that she returned to Ethiopia pregnant with Solomon's son, plot thickens, and he, as an adult, returned to Jerusalem and stole none other than the Ark of the Covenant and brought it back to Ethiopia. The Ark of the Covenant is the box that Moses built to store the Ten Commandments in, famous with Raiders of the Lost Ark. That area... Uh, the area above the, the ark between the two angels there, that was, was thought to be the place where the presence of God physically dwelt. Like that is the most holy place in the whole world during those Old Testament days when the Ark of the Covenant was, was the main thing in Israel. Now, if, if you were going to have the presence of the creator and the sustainer and the judge of the universe to dwell in that one little place, 
I don't know what kind of name you would come up with. You know, it probably have to be some kind of intimidating, scary name because there's so much power in that spot, and yet God chooses to call it the mercy seat. Well, that's, that's a beautiful thought just in itself. The place where God chooses to dwell for those years of Old Testament history. He chooses to be particularly present there. He's present everywhere, but particularly present there. He called it the mercy seat. Now this uh, supposed son of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, he steals the ark, he takes it back to, uh, to Ethiopia, and he apparently he hides it in a church. The church has grown over the years, and so this is what it would look like today. Now, I'm not buying this, because uh, for this thing to remain hidden for essentially 3,000 years, just I can't see how that would work. You could go there today, you could say, I hear the Ark of the Covenant is there, may I see it? And they will say, no, you cannot, because there's one guy who's allowed to see it one time a year. Sounds a lot like the Old Testament with going into the Holy of Holies, right? Nobody else is allowed to see it, nobody else is allowed to verify it. Um, some guys in World War II say they somehow infiltrated, got in, they said, yeah, it's just, it's just a box, it's nothing, nothing special. It didn't melt our faces off like in the Indiana Jones movie. But the, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which would be like the denomination of the church in Ethiopia, they have had a strong Christian presence there since just a few months after the story that we're reading today. And they fully believe that the Ark of the Covenant is in this secret chamber inside this church and one guy gets to go see it once a year. They believe it so much that one year ago this week, it was reported that a bunch of violent rebel Muslim uh, extremist guys went into town shooting things up with the plan to steal the Ark of the Covenant. The regular people of the neighborhood around the church building rushed to the church building and defended it against these well-armed militant guys. Just regular people. they they believe this so much that they're going to lay down their lives. And 800 people sacrificed their lives for this ark that they have never seen. That's how much they believe this. Now, our passage today, we're going to see how we had left Philip traveling from Jerusalem to Samaria, sharing the gospel as he went. We saw how after he's been in in Samaria for a while, and people have come to faith in Christ. Peter and John, the kind of the two main guys, the main leaders of the church, they came, they visited, they prayed for the believers, and God poured the Holy Spirit out on them in that very special moment, showing to them and to the whole world, surprise, surprise, this new religion of Christianity, which didn't even have the name at that point, was not just for Jewish people. I mean, every, almost everybody at that point was Jewish if they were Christian. And yet now they see with their own eyes, the Spirit of God is poured out on the Samaritans, the arch enemies of the Jewish people, and so they have to come to the conclusion that God is actually opening this, this door wide. He's welcoming the, the last people that we would have chosen. Amazingly, God's going to open that door even wider in our passage today. After that pouring out of the Spirit in Samaria, Peter and John go walking back to Jerusalem, visiting Samaritan village after Samaritan village, sharing the gospel with people. But what happened to Philip? 
That's what we see today. Acts 8, starting verse 26. This is on page 917 if you've got a pew Bible. It says this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Queen of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So Philip, who started out as a deacon, a servant, he was waiting tables, administrating the food program for the, the growing church. He's now been used by God to bring the gospel to the Samaritans, which is very surprising. He's been used by God to work miracles, to heal people, to cast out demons, all of this from a guy who had a pretty normal start in life. But not only that, he's one of the few people in all of history to have an angel speak directly to him. See, God has, he's got a mission for Philip, and that mission is so important that he sends an angel to communicate directly to him. In the Bible, angels are never little cute babies with fluffy wings floating on clouds. They're always either warriors or messengers, and they're always intimidating. And they're, they're used kind of sparingly. If we look back over the thousands of years of history that's recorded in the Bible, the history of God's chosen people, there are a few places where angels show up and are talking or doing certain things, but most of that history, it's, we didn't even know was such a thing as an angel. And here Philip, a regular guy, gets a visit from an angel who says, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to go to this road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. That's it. Now there's a lot more to the plan, but that's all the angel tells him at this point. This is how God loves to work. He asks us to do something, to obey him in a certain first step, and he's got a plan that goes far beyond that, but he very seldom share much of the rest of that plan with us. Some of you guys have you've experienced this in life. God has asked you to take an obedient leap of faith, and it's like, it's just this one little step, and you've got no idea what is coming after it, and yet you did it, and you walked in the plan of God. And you saw it come about. And it was all planned beforehand, but God didn't tell you what the plan was. And that's what's happening with Philip here. Go to the road, walk on the road. That's what he's told. But if Philip obeys right away, it's not normal for us. We want to second guess. We want to doubt. We want to postpone. Let's be cautious. Let's you know, weigh the pros and cons. But no, Philip... He doesn't delay, no excuses, he just obeys right away. So he goes to the road, and he starts walking towards Gaza, and he finds a fancy royal procession. Would have been a surprise to him. We're told that it's a court official of the Queen of Ethiopia riding in his chariot. This man, like the Queen of Sheba a thousand years earlier, had traveled all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, not to meet with Solomon, but instead, we're told that he came to worship. So is he 
something of a, a remnant of that Jewish presence, that Jewish religious understanding. There's, just, there's enough memory of the Jewish religion with the people there in Ethiopia a thousand years later that this man believes he should travel for five months by boat and by foot, by, by chariot, in order to get to Jerusalem, in order to worship in a language that he doesn't know, to a God that seems to be connected with a people that is not his people, there's something that he knows that sends him off on that mission. We're also told that he's a eunuch, meaning that he has been castrated in order to do his job as a close confidant servant of the queen of Ethiopia. So there can be no sexual shenanigans for him. Builds trust in the servants of royalty. This is a common thing throughout history. But for him, that was a big deal. None of of us have been asked to do that in order to take a job, right? It's a big deal. What else are we told about this guy? He's in the chariot, and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah, meaning what we would call the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, one of the longest books in the Old Testament, written about 700 years before this story is taking place. At this point in history, almost nobody in the world would have been able to afford a copy of any section of the Holy Scriptures. So expensive, so labor-intensive to produce those scrolls, and yet this guy, he's got a scroll of one of the longest books in the Old Testament. He's got some serious money at his disposal. Like Most of the towns in, Jer- in uh, Israel at that time, in their synagogues, the, the worship center of the town, they'd only have a few pieces of scrolls, and this guy's got a scroll for himself. But we were told that he was high in the government, that he was overseeing the whole treasure of the queen of Ethiopia. And so God has worked in this man, worked for this man, in order to set up this moment, and he's even got a rare scroll from the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah contains some of the the most important and the clearest prophecies about the coming Messiah, Jesus, and specifically about the death of Jesus. We're going to see that right now. 29. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So the communication has gotten even more personal now. The angel has been replaced and the Spirit of God is directly communicating to Philip. Philip's walking along. He sees the the royal procession, and sometime, somehow, maybe in his ears, in his heart, whatever, he he hears the Spirit of God say, go over to that chair. This This is a rare thing. This is a special moment in history. Now, there are lots of people today that'll claim that the Holy Spirit is teaching them, and I don't doubt that the Holy Spirit does communicate things to us, sometimes very clearly through his word, but he can communicate in any way that he wants. He can speak directly to us. Now, when I hear someone saying the Holy Spirit said to me this and this and the Holy Spirit told me to do that, I am pretty naturally skeptic about that. And so I check it against what the word of God says. And a lot of times, especially if it's like somebody on TV or famous or something says, God has said this. Well, then you read read what the word says and it's usually pretty different than 
what that person says. But God can do this. He can communicate however he wants. And he, he chooses at that point to say, okay, angel, I'm done with you. I'm going to talk directly to Philip because this plan is so important. I got to talk to him. Now, I, I don't doubt that that happened at all. And notice that Philip obeyed again right away. And he doesn't even just walk. He runs to the chariot. It's like, okay, God, I'm off. Pew! the chariot. What's next? He listened. He hears the eunuch reading from Isaiah, and he starts a conversation with this royal dude, and he does it in a bold way. This would, this could get him in trouble. This would be offensive. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy amazingly responds with humility. He says, I don't. How could I possibly understand this crazy stuff unless somebody explains it to me? And Philip said, well, Come on up, I'll get in the chariot, and I'll explain it to you. The boldness of Philip here is amazing. But then again, he has been sent there by an angel and communicated directly from God. So he's probably on a spiritual high right now thinking, man, God is really with me. Let's get this going. Verse 32. Sweaty, dusty Philip is in the chariot. And this is the passage that the guy's trying to figure out and Philip's going to help him with. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this, his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to the Philip, said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Now, if you're familiar with the gospel of Jesus, you recognize that this is an amazing setup. God is so at work in this. And, and Philip, I think, has probably got his mouth hanging open right now. It's like, this is, really, this is what you're reading? And this is your question? Is, is Isaiah writing about himself or about somebody to come? Feels like... I got news for you. You are not going to believe this. Think about what has, has happened here. God loves this Ethiopian eunuch, a foreigner, a servant of a foreign kingdom. He loves him so much that he has put into place an amazing plan so that he can hear the gospel right now from Philip. Now, there's good and there's bad in that plan. The guy's born in Africa, so he's very unlikely to know anything about the one true God at this point in history, but he's born in Ethiopia, so there's this remnant of Jewish memory there, and so he can hear something about the Jewish God. But in order to worship this Jewish God, in order to learn more about him, he would have to travel 2,000 miles. Who has the time the freedom, the money to do that, yet God makes sure that he has a job that allows him to take a year off, and he's got the funds to travel all that way. God is making all of this happen, but the, there's the bad in the job, too, because the guy has to be castrated to get the job. So he can, he can never marry and have a family. It's good, and there's, there's bad in this plan, but God is, is working all this together. 
to get this guy right here at this point in history. He's reading from the book of Isaiah, which almost nobody could have afforded a copy of. And he's reading from chapter 53, which is the, the primary chapter that's the prophecy about the coming Messiah who's going to be not just the king of the universe, but a suffering servant like the eunuch who suffered as a servant. It's the passage that tells us about the death of Jesus to come. At that exact moment, a missionary of Jesus shows up and says, do you understand what you're asking? He's going to explain it now. How many pieces of puzzle had to come together at just the right time for this divine appointment to happen. God loves this man so much that he has put this giant plan in place and made sure, personally intervened, make sure that this is coming about as planned. So let's read the passage here that was quoted from Isaiah again with this new lens of all of these things that have to happen in order to get this moment happening as it is. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can, who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And we can look back through history, and we can know that Isaiah is writing about Jesus. But the eunuch, the Ethiopian, he has no idea. This is a mystery to him. And he asked Philip to explain the mystery. Philip can do that. Verse 35. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news, the gospel of Jesus. This is, this is an incredible setup. Right? Only God could pull this off. This guy is asking the perfect question at the perfect time, and the, guy, the other guy shows up, and he's got the perfect answer to it. Now, I don't know what path through the Scriptures. I don't know how Philip explained the gospel to him. We're not told how long this conversation goes. It's probably a long detailed conversation, lots of questions, lots of answers. But I suspect that at least Philip said, let's back up a few verses. And let's go to the beginning of what we would call chapter 53. There were no chapter markers at the time. But he said, let's go back up a few verses. Let me read for you guys the things that are written in Isaiah right before Philip shows up and hears what he hears. Isaiah 53. This is on page 613. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. This is talking about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if you are a Christian here today, you know that that passage, written 700 years before Jesus, is absolutely talking about your Savior. That's the same chapter that this dude from Ethiopia is reading from when Philip shows up. Just amazing to me. The most important, most direct prophecy of the death of Jesus in the Old Testament, and he's right there in that spot. Jesus, crushed because of our sins. It's described right there in Isaiah 53. All the guilt, all the wrath, all the punishment, all that stuff that we deserve laid on him instead. And through this terrible and unjust death, Jesus makes it possible for us to have peace with God the Father. Because of the way he suffered, our souls can be healed. Now I imagine Philip reading these earlier verses and just bouncing up and down with excitement. Because what's the answer to the eunuch's question? No, this is not Isaiah writing about himself. He's actually writing about the coming Messiah, and you're not going to believe this. He's not just a man. He's God himself come to rescue us and give himself up as a ransom for us. And the Ethiopian eunuch, he's trying to process all this stuff. How could that possibly be? And so the, the conversation must go on and on, explaining and answering questions. But we're told that Philip started at that spot, started with the passage and the question of that man, and then explained the whole good news of Jesus to him. So how he advanced through the scriptures, we're not told, but I'm sure that he got to these main points somehow. Who is Jesus? The man would ask that after he hears about Jesus being the prophet the one prophesied of in Isaiah 53. Who is Jesus? He is, he is God in the flesh. He is the rescuer come for us. He's the creator and the sustainer of all that exists. He is perfect. He's holy. He's loving. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite. He is the eternal one. And if I was in Philip's shoes and I had a copy of the New Testament, which would have been pretty miraculous at that point since there wasn't a New Testament, I could have flipped to Colossians 1. Paul says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. This is not just a man. This is the God man. Jesus, the creator, the sustainer, the ruler over everything. That is who Isaiah is talking about. And he would have to answer the question, what has Jesus done? When Jesus has taken upon himself the punishment that we deserve. This this infinite ruler and creator and sustainer of the universe came as one of us. 
humbling himself and taking upon himself the very things that separated us from him. I would flip to 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And you can see there's that direct echo of Isaiah 53 in that passage in, Isaiah, in 1 Peter. By his wounds you have been healed. And if he got through all of that and however he did it, and I'm sure that the Ethiopian was saying, this is, this is amazing news. I had no idea what now. What should, what should I do about this? And I would then turn to Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus starts his public ministry. Repent and believe. Now, repentance in the New Testament is always imaged. It's always made visible that initial repentance into faith, it's, it's made visible through baptism. In the early church, when someone placed their faith in Christ, the next step was baptism. It was, it was really unthinkable for these early Christians to say, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to be baptized. Because baptism was the picture, the outward display of what God had already been doing in their heart. It was their response, their picture of repentance, to be baptized. Baptism and repentance were linked together. It's the way that you said to the world publicly, I'm done ruling my life. I submit to the Lord Jesus as the ruler of my life. Now, baptism didn't save you. We saw just last week that Simon, that magician guy in Samaria, he had proclaimed faith in Christ. He said, I believe. And he had been baptized, but his, his heart was still lost. He was still a lost soul. He had not he had not actually repented. He'd just gone through the motion that represented repentance. We saw in, in Acts 2, when Peter preached that first sermon after the Holy Spirit was given, the 3,000 people heard the gospel and belief swelled up inside of them and their hearts said, I believe what you are saying is true. What should I do with my belief? And Peter said this, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Philip was probably there to witness that particular sermon. Maybe he explains this to the Ethiopian guy. However he did it, he got the basics of the gospel communicated to this guy, and we know that he believed it, that some point in that conversation with Philip, the Spirit sparks new life in this Ethiopian, and he becomes a believer in Jesus. How do we know that happens? Because of the way he responds. Back to Acts chapter 8, verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he, he baptized him. Now, 
I, I love this. The, the eunuch, he's so captured by the gospel. He's heard the gospel. He knows that these are words of truth. This is the word of life that I'm hearing. This is, this is the freedom. This is the new life that I've been looking for. I think of the truckers in Canada and their freedom uh, convoy. The, the freedom that they're looking for is a good and great freedom. But this guy, he's been on a mission for greater freedom. And he has just heard the words of life and freedom. Faith explodes inside of him. He's heard the truth of Jesus. He has believed it. This is the thing he has been looking for. What should he do? He is so eager for real change. This is the thing that really struck my heart this week as I was looking for it. He has traveled 2,000 miles in order to worship and learn more about this mysterious God of the Old Testament. He's got a little portion of the Old Testament. How much, how much more he knows, we don't have any idea, but he's come searching five months of travel one direction in order to seek out this God of the Old Testament. And he ends up meeting the author of the Old Testament himself. God the Holy Spirit is working in him in such a way that, that faith comes alive in him and he says, I believe, what should I do? God has been pursuing this man for years. He's chosen him. He's predestined him for salvation. God is going to great lengths to save him. We already saw. And then wonders of wonders, at that exact moment that this man is born again and wants to obey through baptism, they happen to be right next to a pool of water. Now remember, at the beginning of our passage, we were told that this was a desert place. How often do you come across a pool of water in a desert place? And it's a significant pool because they go down into it, we're told. This is a real baptism, a real dunking. It's not like a moistening, spritzing somebody. This is an actual dunking. God has made all of this possible, and he's worked out all the timing exactly to make this happen. If God had not worked this out, if Philip had just explained the gospel and kind of talked about baptism, and then the Spirit had whisked him away, how would this guy have been able to obey in baptism? He's going back to a place that knows nothing about Jesus. There are no other believers at all. He, what would he do? To, to grab himself, dunk himself? Yet God in his mercy is making this possible. And so he believes and he's baptized into the church. He's, he's labeled publicly as belonging to Jesus. And now he goes back to Ethiopia as a missionary of Jesus. And still today, the Ethiopian church traces its history all the way back to this nameless guy. You know his name. Yet he's the one that brings the gospel to Ethiopia. Ethiopians are prepared to hear it with that Jewish presence for a thousand years. He brings the rest of the story. How many of his brothers and sisters in Ethiopia did this man then share Christ with and baptize? So what happens next? There's a weird twist in the story. 
And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So let's get our map up here. Apparently, they're somewhere down in the region of Gaza. Find the pool, dunk the guy, and then poof, Philip just disappeared. It's like he's got a Holy Spirit teleportation device hidden in his robe somewhere. He pushes the button, and it's, he's gone. Now, this would be shocking for the eunuch and the other folks in the party. It's probably very shocking for Philip, too. We're not told that this has ever happened to Philip before. We should assume it hasn't, because if this is something that he can pull off, he could have just teleported himself from Samaria over to where he would meet the eunuch instead. He had to walk the road. And so just out of nowhere, God does this other unique thing. He's been doing lots of unique things with Philip. He does this other unique thing and just zaps him over to the city of Azotus or Ashdod, as it's sometimes called. And I got to wonder, does he just appear kind of hidden behind a rock somewhere outside of town where nobody sees this happen? And then he strolls into town? Or is it just the middle of the day and bang, he's there in the middle of town, and people are screaming and running in fear because out of nowhere this guy has appeared. I also have to wonder, is he still dripping from the baptism, right? If it's just this instantaneous move through time and space, is there wind enough to dry him off? But however it works, suddenly a soggy stranger snaps on the scene. How strange. That's funny. He's got to be impressed with So however it happened, notice that Philip just keeps on keeping on doing the same thing that he has been doing. He gets sent to Azotus, and then he starts the long trek up, we're told, to Caesarea, which is his hometown. And he just shares the gospel with one village after another as he goes, because Philip is now an evangelist. In fact, that's the title that he gets through all of church history, Philip the Evangelist. Not Philip the Deacon, not Philip the teleportation expert, but Philip the evangelist, his calling is to tell people the good news, and that's what he's going to do wherever he is and whoever he's with. Of course he is, because God has obviously called him to this. Now, as amazing as all of these things are, all the pieces of the puzzle that have to come together for this story to work out exactly as it did, exactly when it did, and exactly where it did, the thing that is most amazing to me in this passage is the heart, the hungry, longing heart of the Ethiopian. The things that he has gone through physically to get the answers to his question. What he has undertaken. The study that he's done, the travel that he's done, the the humble way that he says, I don't understand, please, somebody tell me. He has been seeking, he has been searching the Old Testament scriptures, he has been pondering the mysteries of God. He doesn't know who this God is, he doesn't know how to get more information about this God. He just is drawn somehow to this God of the foreign people. He's dedicated to finding spiritual life. He's hungry for God. He's he's desperate for the truth. He's longing for spiritual life. He's eager for real change in his life. And so when someone, it happens to be Philip, explains to him the gospel, 
comes alive. He responds eagerly. He is quick to repent and believe. He didn't fight against the truth. He didn't resist the message of the gospel. He didn't pretend that he didn't need forgiveness. He didn't weigh the pros and cons and do a cost-benefit analysis of trusting in Christ. He dove in headfirst. He ran with wild abandon into spiritual life in Christ, into spiritual growth. I just kept thinking over and over again, I wish this was true of all of us. Imagine if our hearts were like this guy's heart. He had to work so hard to get the answers. We got the answers right in front of us in multiple copies of the Bible. We're like, yeah, whatever. As, as a pastor, my calling is to, um, to try to explain the Bible to people, whether it's up here or in person or whatever. Explain the Bible to people. And say, this, is, this is what God wants you to know. This is what God wants you to do. This is how God wants you to explain. And, and much of my 20-some years as a pastor, the effort that goes into that explaining is so much bigger than the response from the hearts of our people, including my heart. We tend to resist what God says. Over the years, I've had lots of people who essentially think in their hearts, I don't want to know what the Bible says. I want help with this. I want to I know what to do in my life, but just don't bother me with it. I've had people just outright say it to me. Don't tell me what the Bible says. That's the opposite of this nameless Ethiopian guy. My prayer for us this morning is that we would recognize our desperate need for Jesus. Even if you are already in Jesus, you've been saved by Jesus for decades, you still are in desperate need of him. You are you're just as in need as this guy was. Now your life is real comfortable, and if you wanted to go to Ethiopia, you could get there in less than 24 hours. And if you wanted to go from Ethiopia to, to Israel, actually, I don't know if you're allowed to do these things today because of all the restrictions, but if you wanted to, it's probably a four-hour flight from Ethiopia to Israel. It's so easy compared to what he has done. And yet most of us, in our hearts, we're, when we're showing what the Scripture says, we respond with, eh, See if I can get a better offer. God says this to you. This is what God is calling you to do. Slow down, buddy. I'm not interested. My prayer is that God would change our hearts. That, that he, would, he would take that hardness of heart and he would soften it. That he would, he would help us to recognize just how much we need him. And that this longing, this desire for him that works it out in an obedience right away, obey right away, that that would, that would just become normal for us. We wouldn't take the word of God for granted, that we wouldn't take the, the words of life for granted, but instead that we'd, we'd drink them up like a thirsty person in the desert, the life that they are. So let me leave you with this. Matthew 5, 6, 
the words of Jesus himself. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He could have filled in that blanket however he wanted. Blessed are those who have a great job. Blessed are those who get to live in the United States in 2022. Blessed are those who are the treasurer to the queen of Ethiopia. Blessed are those who happen to be born and raised next to Jesus of Nazareth. Blessed are all these, but no, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the things of God, for the truth of God, for the life of God, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, we, um, if we're honest, we recognize that we are a long way from being like this guy from Ethiopia. We, we resist the things that you tell us. We resist the, the direct commands of Scripture. We resist the call of surrendering our lives to you as Lord. We, we want to believe that maybe we're, we're not all that bad without Jesus. I think of those words in Isaiah 53 that describe the crushing, the breaking of Jesus for us and the reality of just how rebellious we are. It's clear. For him to have to go through that so that we could be reconciled to the Father, it's, it, was, it was a great need. It had to be met with a great sacrifice. Lord, we need you. We want to believe that we don't. We pretend that we don't. We try to live our lives like we don't. And we just kind of access you here and there when we need a little something. But we need you desperately. We, we feed ourselves and we drink, we consume the things of this world thinking that they'll satisfy us, but they don't. In our real hunger, our real thirst, we suppress it, we mask it, we ignore it. So Lord, help us to both recognize our need for you and to allow ourselves to truly hunger and thirst for you. Work in our hearts, change us so that when we hear the truth, we respond like this Ethiopian guy, eager to repent, eager to change, eager to trust you more, eager to do whatever it is that you're asking us to do. Please do that in our hearts, Lord. Use each of us in this room to encourage others in this room to become that kind of person. Give us the, the courage to encourage and to challenge, to support and confront, to, to pray for and to warn each other, Lord, that we may become more like this guy. And ultimately, Lord, that we may become more like your son. We need you. We confess that now as we sing. We ask you to do the surgery in our hearts.